All right, if you're following along in your Bible, 1 John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's one of my most dreaded verses in the Bible. The world and its desire pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives Forever. And that usually is never mentioned at a commencement address. Whoever does the will of God lives forever, at least not in this day and age. Well, my message this morning has to do with a role that I think fathers play, grandparents play, women play. We all play it in the faith, and that is what uh, is called mentoring. And to me, mentoring is, it's kind of like, it's a uh, maybe unorganized or non-programmatic way of, of sharing the faith. You're actually just sharing the core of your life and who you are day to day. It could be doing something like while you're playing golf. And I can't tell you how many deep conversations about faith I've had with the most unlikely people who, when we're out in the middle of the golf course, they want to talk about church they haven't been to in 20 years. Or about situations with their uh, adult children. Or recently... uh, Lived with a woman 16 years, married for four years, and now we're getting divorced. Not that I'm out preaching, but just because we're sharing a common love for the game and having a good time. There seems to be an openness and want to know. Not that I'm perfect in any way. I mean, I have been accused as the preacher who cusses on the golf course. I'm just telling you up front, okay? There's certain words I will not use, okay? Not often, but it, it just on occasion. I'm not trying to show I am human, but it, it, it happens, okay? But it could be in any area of life. It could be at the shooting range. It could be at the grocery store. You know, I, I've been trying to strike up conversation with people almost anywhere. And because people have been so cloistered, I've been really surprised how much people want to talk, whether it's at the health club or uh, I was doing this on an elevator at South Padre. And really surprised everybody 
had something to share. They wanted to say. But it's these informal settings, and it can be with coworkers, many many different ways. Uh, in the Webster Dictionary, uh, the word mentor has a very interesting definition. It says, we acquired mentor, the word mentor, from the literature of ancient Greece. In Homer's epic, the Odyssey, Odysseus was away from home fighting and journeying for 20 years. During that time, Telemachus, the son he left as a babe in arms, grew up under the supervision of mentor, an old and trusted friend. When the goddess Athena decided it was time to complete the education of young Telemachus, she visited him disguised as mentor, and they set out together to learn about his father. Today we use the word mentor for anyone who is a positive guiding influence in another, usually a younger person's life. We sometimes uh, may think of synonymous words like coach, someone who gives counsel, a guide, a leader, someone who pilots, a shepherd, a tutor, someone who can guide in a healthy manner, but sometimes can keep a little bit detached or disinterested enough that they can really share the truth of their life. You know, sometimes it is a little easier to talk to somebody who's a little bit of a stranger and not an insider in the family to help us reflect on and to help us with our life. And I think the church really has that. I, I know of a younger church in our area, they go, boy, I wish, we, I wish we actually had some of the older people. Sometimes, you know, you say that you don't have very many young people visiting your church. We have the opposite. We have no older leaders in our church. And let me tell you, we are in dire need of stability at our meetings and with the big ups and downs and the anxieties of life. We need people that have walked with the Lord a long time. And, and boy, we just don't have that. So consider yourselves blessed over at your church. And I go, I had never thought of it that way. But that is a blessing. But we need these mentors to cross paths with, with mentees. And if we pray, you may be surprised at who comes your way. It could be a grandparent, I mean grandkids. It could be, in our case, a couple of uh, college girls who are studying nursing that have made our house sometimes feel like a, uh, I'm living in a sorority. I have my man cave upstairs over the garage. And every once in a while they ask me for advice about school, even about men. I know something about men. Something that all young ladies ought to know about men. But I have to be asked. I dare not share any of those type of things unless I'm asked. And sometimes that's how a mentor is. They're, they're waiting to be asked. They're not being overt and trying to teach. But they're there and they're full of wisdom. Particularly 
in their walk with the Lord. When we read 1 John, we're, we're reading John from the later part of his life. Remember, he is the only apostle that died a natural death. Most scholars feel like 1 John was written probably after 90 A.D., so if, say, John was anywhere between 17 and 20 at the time of Jesus and 32 A.D., just add 60 years, at least 60 years to that. So he's probably at least at least 77 years old, maybe maybe 80. He is the elder statesman in the church. Almost all the other apostles are gone. They're all gone. They've all passed on. They've all been martyred. And, of course, John himself, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in oil. He didn't die. They put him in exile on the Isle of uh, Patmos at one time and working in mines. He didn't die. He actually received the revelation, the book of Revelation. And then from there later, he went to Ephesus where he was like a bishop in the church. People listened to his wisdom. And he uh, would also do some traveling, and he would try to lift up the pastors, the, the preachers. We have stories from the church fathers of the second century. They wrote about some of these discussions and the things that John did as he traveled. And it's very similar to what, what we find here, but I'm just focused on just a little bit of some advice that he gives here in 1 John, just some things to remember when it comes to us being stable in the faith because, let's face it, right now we live during some very unstable or changing times. It's hard to know what's up. It's hard to know what's down. But I do realize that by faith that whenever there's crisis like this and people on the move, do you know who else is moving? God's moving. And even though I may not like some of the things I see, sometimes I wonder when I look at history if it's not God who sometimes ignites the fire. The devil may think he's in control, but even God can light the devil's fire and use him for the greater good. Let's face it, as a human race, unless we're desperate and down at the bottom of the barrel looking up, we don't cry out for mercy unless we completely lack understanding of who I am, where I'm going, what I was made for, and begin to ask those questions in desperation out of an identity crisis, then I'm probably not open to hearing any answers. Church has lots of answers just right now. Not a lot of people are asking the questions we have answers to. They're looking towards other paths. But those paths will dead end. And those questions will come up. They most definitely will. And now one person's life is wasted as to where you are situated in life with your divine influence whether you're pushing a broom for the kingdom of God or you're the next you know Billy Graham you have influence exactly where God has you 
So in, in John, uh, 1 John 2.12, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Fundamental truth. You know what forgiveness is, right? You realize you've been forgiven. Clean, declared not guilty. Oh, you were guilty, believe me. You were guilty and the worst of the worst, but somebody at the last minute stepped in front of you, in front of the judge, and said, somebody's got to pay. Let me take that. Let me take that for Elliot. Let me take that for Jim. And the judge said, that's what you really want to do? Okay. Let me take that for Todd. I'm writing to your dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Where else are people going to get forgiveness? You know, as, older, as people get older, I have been seeing, you know, in the last 20 years, I'm seeing more people come to Christ in retirement years than ever before. And I think there is a realization at some point that I am getting closer to the front of the line, and that's okay. But I am praying that more younger people would discover the Lord earlier without having to suffer so many scars and heartbreak in life. They don't have to. That's often the case. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. It's wonderful when we have a testimony of somebody who's just been entrapped in such kind of gross skin and they have a, a sin and they have some high profile, you know, life that uh, we only wish that we could live, you know, kind of like the Cardassians or something. And then they, they turn from this God-awful sin and then we, man, usher them up to the front of a church to share that incredible testimony. Sad thing is sometimes a couple years later they fall back off the wagon but you know, I think one of the greatest testimonies is somebody who's walked with the Lord a long time. They filtered out a lot of the crud in their life. They have maturity. They've known Him from the beginning. They've known the Lord a long time. They can hear a false prophet. They can understand what is the voice of truth. They are stable. They have learned maturity when it comes to loyalty and love and faith and temperament and not getting drunk on wine and not loving this world. Those are amazing testimonies. We don't often parade those people up in front because it's kind of boring. They've just been walking with God all this time. Well, let me tell you, boring and godly is really, really needed. I was talking with a youth worker the other day, and they're going, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing with young people is, 
how many of these teenagers, you know, they have prayer requests about their anxiety, their suffering. And then they tell me that they're on these anxiety meds from their doctor and they're just like 16 years old and they're on antidepressants and they're going to church but their family split up. Their mom and dad don't talk to each other. They're in different directions. They've seen everything in life a young person should never see that early in life. Just lived through hell, disloyalty, hate, backstabbing, but they come to Christ. And boy, do they need a mentor, a godly person. I mean, whether it's baking them a pie or just inviting them over for dinner and befriending them. Remember, often we're there to answer the questions when we get asked. And sometimes if they're not family members, they're bound to ask you sooner. That just seems to be the way it is. But, wow, this person is a senior and they're a youth worker And teenagers seem to be overwhelmed, at least in her, you know, in her orbit of ministry, with anxiety. Do you think that's, do you think that's across the board? Is that very common? Is that common? I'm trying to think how much anxiety I had as a teenager. I know I caused a lot. I know my dad encouraged me to do one thing. I was kind of obstinate and just quest, really, really questioning it and wanted to go the other way. You know, somebody said that sometimes it may be God puts that in our children's heart so that they leave home. Time for you to leave, get out the nest, you know. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You know, you you might get dismayed that you've been walking this walk a long time. But you don't want to get discouraged when you're in the last mile. You know, you... You want to maintain that engine, those RPMs. You want to get there. You want to go out with people singing your praise. Because a lot of times people don't judge us on the beginning. They, they judge us more, you know, at a funeral service on how, on how we ended. Christianity is about finishing strong. No matter where you've been, let's finish strong. We can always turn things around. Let's finish strong. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. And then I'm writing to you, young man. You know, as, as you read this, he's, he's talking to all generations. And he has seen them go, you know, as a young man of faith following Jesus, probably as a late teenager. You know, John. Remember, John is the one at the Lord's Supper. Where was he seated? Bible trivia folks, where was he seated? And what was his position that we're told about? 
one point. Yeah, and what did he? Did he lay his head on his, some, some say on his breast and his shoulder? You know, showing some endearment, some love. And here he is as a late teenager. He loved Jesus. And he writes about love more than any of the disciples. That did not leave him even as an old, as an old man. In this last part of this little passage here, he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Do you realize the freedom that comes when Jesus chooses you? I love those gospel stories. You know, it goes Matthew, the tax collector. He's thinking about how much more money he's going to make. And he's raking it in. And he's sitting at his table. But Jesus comes walking by. And he probably has heard about Jesus. And they thought, wow, what a radical life of this young itinerant rabbi. And the things that that I've heard people repeat that, he is, is saying is just absolutely incredible. It's so different than my life. And then he actually comes by his table and looks at him. I don't know if he points at him. But he says, hey, come and follow me. I need all types. He, he gets up. He leaves the business. He, he walks away there's something whoa whoa okay lord is there something i'm doing wrong right here <laughs> yeah oh, that was an affirmation boy i hate to see the other side I have naturally, been, Loretta would tell you the lightning, if it hits next to her house, I can be laying flat on the bed and I, my body will come off of the bed. It's like a, a reaction. Come off of the bed. But you know, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote that when we accept Christ, that what happens in the spiritual realm is that it says that Jesus transfers us from the kingdom of darkness, he literally picks us up out of that self-inflicted jail cell. And he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Can anybody break into that kingdom and steal that person away? I don't think they can. Can the devil break in? And grab that soul and bring him back. You try. There's a story about uh, John. I think it's told by Clement of uh, Alexandria. And it was recorded by uh, around 190 A.D. And that he was visiting uh, a church. And he was there to uh, help encourage the pastor. And there was some... There were some young men being ordained or set apart for different offices in the church. But there was a young, a young man, maybe too, too young to actually be in, ordained in ministry at the time. And it says that John pointed to him and said, keep an eye on him. I believe the Lord has a destiny for this person to be a leader in the church. 
And we don't know his exact background, but it's saying that that, that pastor actually adopted and took him into his home and raised him. But in his late teenage years, he had some questionable friends that were into thievery, and he began running with them. And he kind of left the Lord behind, and he actually became the leader of his own gang so that years later, when the Apostle John came back to visit the church, what happened to the boy you adopted that I noted God wanted him? He said, well, he fell into a den of robbers. I mean, he's running a gang. If you go down this road over here, I mean, you're, you don't want to go. They're going to uh, capture you, beat you up, and take everything uh, you have. And John was beside himself. He's an, he's an old man. Without asking anybody, he gets on a horse and goes towards that road. He meets these ruffians. And they start to accost him. And he said, where is your leader? And he named this young man. We'll take you to him. See what he has to say. So they take him to him. And the young man looks away in disgust because he recognizes the Apostle John. And their conversation, you know, roughly goes something like, you know, how can you have forgotten God's calling on your life? That is still your destiny. It has not gone anywhere. You need to come back to the church and insert yourself to the place that God had called you and redeemed you to be part of. It's recorded by the church fathers. And it said that this young man, over time, he came back and repented. Wow, the influence of an old man. I, I, um, I remember uh, one of our own elders that doesn't live here anymore. Just a bright, bright spot in the history of this church. Told me at one time he wasn't walking with God. His wife wanted to uh, possibly leave him. And a little old man that was pastor of this church, after he retired, had moved here, had become the pastor, somehow got this person's name, went to visit him, not knowing what's going on in this, this man, younger man's life and his family. And that person became an elder in this church. I would say an elder emeritus. Had grown up in the Christian church. It wasn't because of special words. It was just because of the presence, the stability, the Holy Spirit in that person. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Don't dismiss the great work that God is doing in you. No, it just starts out as a little seed, and it takes time. I remember one of the kids came home years ago, some little science project, and they had this little pine seedling. And at first, we stuck that thing out in the front. And I mean, there was probably five or six years. I don't think it grew this tall. I just said this, this black land soil is not good for it. 
When it got to be about that big, later on we moved it out in the backyard. And I don't know, after like 15 years, I don't think that thing was this tall. The last five years, that thing has now uh, shot up to almost 40 feet. I don't know the difference. It just stayed there forever and ever and ever. Maybe the roots, other things were going on. I don't know. But it suddenly shot up and answered the call to what it was made to be, a big old pine tree. Now it's starting to outshade some other trees under it. They're competing, I guess, now. But you see those wonders in nature, and those wonders are in us as well. We indeed do live in a time where there may be a price paid to follow Jesus. As I watch the news and see all these statues being torn down, what I'm really looking for is when statues of Jesus and the saints start to be torn down. Now, we saw that in the Middle East, particularly with the rise of ISIS. We saw crosses and icons and statues uh, smashed and torn down. But I don't know that we've seen those in the U.S. torn down. But I have already heard of some small businesses starting to hang signs, uh, Christians not welcome, because how we're being portrayed. I hope things don't get worse, but they do say that the uh, blood of of the martyrs is what fuels the harvest of souls in the future. I want you to stay steady in the Lord. I want you to have the joy of the Lord despite what's going on. I was thinking of this hymn, and I, I was actually just trying to remember what the words were when I saw that this, this hymn called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus was actually written by a man in India 150 years ago. And it's like, that story just passed me by. Some of you probably know that. And this is the little story behind, behind I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Has everybody in here saying that at least once? At least one time. I have decided to follow Jesus as a Christian hymn originating from India. The lyrics are based on, on the last words of a man, uh, Garo uh, Assam. About 150 years ago, a great revival took place in Wales. As a consequence, many missionaries went out to northeast India to spread the gospel. The region known as Assam consisted of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and sometimes aggressive. A group of Welsh missionaries spread the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ to these communities. They were not greeted with love, however. One Welsh missionary was able to convert a man, his wife, and two kids. This man's faith was contagious, and many villagers decided to start started to embrace Christianity. Angry, the chief of the village gathered all the villagers. He then called the man who had first converted and demanded he renounce his faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man instantly came up with a song which became famous for years to come. He sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. 
Outraged at the refusal of this man, the chief told his archers to shoot down his two children. As both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, Will you deny your faith? Have you lost? You have lost both your children. Will you lose your wife as well? But the man responded with these beautiful words, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief was going crazy when he ordered for his wife to be shot down as well. In an instant, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the final time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of certain death, the man bolted out of the final, bolted out the final memorable lines. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. He was killed like the rest of his family, but with their deaths, a stunning revelation took place within the village. The chief who had ordered the killings was shaken to the core by the faith of this man. He wondered why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent some 2,000 years ago. There must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith, and I too want to taste that faith. In a spontaneous confession of faith, he said, I too belong to Jesus Christ. When the crowd heard from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that remarkable? There's some missionaries, you know, they work for generations in the area and never see any fruit. Might build some orphanages, hand out a lot of food, do a lot of good things. And then wham, out of nowhere, there's just revival. Because they were laying the groundwork and they stayed through tough times. Our band's going to come up and I, I want us to, uh, to end this, this message, I want us to sing to sing that because it reminds me that uh, sometimes there is a price to be paid for our faith but we have to ask ourselves would we trade it for anything and do the people we live our faith in front of do they know how much that means to us that it's not some flippant type of faith but it is real